Acts chapter 23 will be our home base this morning. I left, you might remember, after service last Sunday, headed to New Mexico. I spent the week in Las Cruces with the young men and women of 10th Hour Project. There they are. Good-looking group from all over, from northern New York and from the Pacific Northwest and a bunch from California, a bunch from Knoxville, um, a couple from the Carolinas, coming together to be equipped to minister in Jesus' name. Um, and, and by the way, everywhere I turned out there, people who were here uh, as 10th Hour came through last Easter weekend, people who were here and people who weren't, when, when I said, hey, I'm Patrick, I'm from Wichita, oh, you're, you're the Good Friday Church. Our ministry to them, your ministry to them, really had an impact on the last cohort that came through. Some of them are interns uh, with the program now, but they asked me to, to convey their deep appreciation for freeing me up uh, to go serve out there. They're a startup ministry, so they're not, hey, you know, come for a week and we'll pay for your air for and write you a big check. No, it's, it's, it's Calvary Wichita sent me there as, as a missionary of sorts to, to pour into them. And I got to do something I've always wanted to do. Um, those of you who know me know that um, you know, my life verse, my life passage comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, um, where Peter says, add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance to perseverance, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. If these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful um, in the service of Jesus. And so what we did um, for those four days I was out there is we took each of those bullet points and we spent an hour on it. So build on your faith. So we talked about grace and add to your faith the virtue, the boldness to go out and be dangerous for the Lord. And we talked about the Holy Spirit's role in calling us and sending us and equipping us. And uh, add to virtue knowledge. And we talked about how to know God's will, to knowledge self-control. We talked about cookies, because I had to, right? <laughs> talked about perseverance, and that took us into a discussion of biblical accountability. Um, to perseverance, godliness, and we unpack the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth, really camping out on the gentleness of Jesus. Brotherly kindness, we looked at unity uh, for the sake of the gospel, and then love, since love is others, we did Q&A Cafe and talked about things that they wanted to talk about, which was really neat. So anyway, thank you uh, for the opportunity to go serve them. I was, I'm sure, more blessed than they were. Um, by the way, Ethan also says hi. He's, he's one of the uh, 14 or so interns out there. I told him the mustache was a, good, was a bad idea. He was sure it was a good idea. You can, you can text him and let him know your vote. Acts 23, footsteps of Paul. I was asked this week, somebody actually messaged me when I was in New Mexico and asked, where are we going after uh, we finish the book of Acts? And the footsteps of Paul will take us next to the book of Ephesians. Uh, when we finish Acts, Paul's on his way to Rome. That's where the story leaves off. From Rome, we know that Paul writes the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which I, I think is probably a cover letter to Colossians. Um, he writes them in some order. We're not sure. There are some textual clues that suggest Colossians was last. So we'll do it last. Ephesians, Philippians is a toss-up. The men wanted to do Philippians, so hey, we'll do Ephesians. And then, I don't know, probably we'll switch. <laughs> But first, we got to get Paul to Rome, because when we left off, he was still in Jerusalem. 
When we left off last week, he was in Roman custody in Jerusalem. He was he was prisoner of sorts. He was a guest who wasn't allowed to leave the Antonia Fortress. If you've missed a week or two, two weeks ago, Paul was rescued by Roman troops. He was out uh, in the temple sharing his testimony. He's there in the courtyard, and he's attacked by a mob who misunderstood the ministry that he was doing at the temple. That was Acts 21. So he was taken to custody by a Roman officer, in fact, by the commander of the garrison there, because the goal of the Roman military was to maintain the peace. But while in custody, in fact, the same day he was taken into custody, Paul was allowed to go back out and speak to the crowd. I think the commander was probably hoping that Paul would reason with them. Paul's goal was what Paul's goal always was, to share the gospel with them. With predictable results, the mob tried to kill him again. That was last week. That was chapter 22. By the end of the chapter, we see the mob out for blood. And once again, the Roman commander rescues Paul, pulls him back inside. But this time, he's not happy either. He wants to understand what's going on, who is this guy who's stirring up so much trouble, because his job, the commander's job, was to maintain peace and tranquility. So he plans to torture Paul to find out what has got the Jewish people so angry. Typical of the Roman military in Paul's day, never pursue an elegant solution when brute force is still an option. Just one problem, Paul turns out to be a Roman citizen, and you can't torture Roman citizens. In fact, you can't even tie them up without due process. So we pick up the story this morning, verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 30 of chapter 22. We pick up the story the next day. The day after Paul is almost killed, not once, but twice, the Roman commander tries a different approach. The next day, chapter 22, verse 30, because he, the commander, wanted to know for certain why this guy Paul was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul was still in custody, but he was allowed to leave the fortress somewhere um, nearby they agreed to meet. Now, question, how does a Roman officer command or compel the chief priests, the the Sanhedrin, the the ruling council of Israel, how does he compel them to do anything? Answer is technically he didn't. At the time, the Sanhedrin still had autonomy over their own affairs, over religious affairs, and technically that's what this was. But we also know who the high priest was. We know from secular history, both Roman and Jewish, the high priest at this time was a guy named Ananias who was thoroughly, thoroughly pro-Rome. By the way, different Ananias from the Gospels, also a different Ananias from the guy we looked at last week, the one who led a blinded Paul um, into Damascus. This was uh, the high priest for about a decade, and history universally regards him as corrupt, greedy, violent. He stole tithes that were intended to support the priests in the temple. So they they wrote letters at the time saying we're we're practically starving because we're not getting our our portion of, of the tithes. He used Roman troops to silence dissent among the Jewish people. Ultimately, he's assassinated by Jewish zealots. Point being, he was in Rome's pocket And so while the Roman commander had no authority to call the council into session, he could call up his buddy and say, hey, can you and the guys come over? Can you you bring the Sanhedrin? Because I need you guys to help me get to the bottom of what's going on. 
So unofficially, the Sanhedrin comes to the Antonia Fortress, the headquarters of Roman troops in Jerusalem, to try to get to the bottom of who Paul is and why he has the power to whip people into such a frenzy. Which gives Paul, chapter 23, verse 1, an opportunity to once again fulfill the mission that Jesus set before him back, 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 way back in Acts 9.15. When Jesus says, Paul will be my witness before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For the third time since he's come back into Jerusalem, since he's come back from his third missions trip, Paul gets to do that. He gets to share the gospel specifically with the children of Israel, with the Jewish people. And for the third out of three times, it doesn't go very well. It doesn't get very far. Chapter 23, verse 1, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Men and brethren, Paul is addressing this group as peers. The traditional form of address was brethren and fathers, which was more respectful. Paul is just saying, hey guys, <laughs> Brothers, which is reasonable because there's a good argument to be made that Paul, before he was saved, was in fact a member of the Sanhedrin. There's debate about that, but even if he wasn't, clearly he ran in the same circles. He was educated alongside some of these guys, almost certainly, and persecuted the church along with them. But none of that does Paul any favors. That doesn't give him any special standing. He hasn't gotten done saying good morning, and Ananias says, punch that guy in the face. Which is what he's saying. Strike here is not a slap. This is not some sort of ritualistic, I challenge you to a duel kind of. No. Paul got socked. Why? Because from Ananias' point of view, how can Paul claim to be living before God in good conscience when he's out there telling people that Jesus was the Messiah? In Ananias' mind, those things can't possibly go together. And we can empathize a little bit, because in our mind, Paul's confusing us as well. How can Paul claim to have lived before God in good conscience when he's persecuting the church? When he was imprisoning Christians, when he was executing Christ's followers. In our mind, those two things can't possibly go together. We kind of want to give Paul a smack, don't we? <laughs> Except Paul didn't say that everything he did was okay. He said his conscience said it was okay, but that's different. His conscience said it was okay because at the time, all Paul's conscience knew was the law. And putting blasphemers to death was not only permissible under the law, it was required. It's important to remember, our conscience is fallible. It's flawed. It only knows what it's been told. It only understands what it's been taught. Which means conscience is not a reliable authority on what's right or wrong. Someone can say, my conscience tells me it's okay to steal from someone who's richer than me. And that might be true. Their conscience might say that. Someone could say, my conscience tells me that if someone disrespects my family, it's okay for me to kill them. And their conscience might genuinely believe that. Because what my conscience says has doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what God says or what God's word says. And if I don't know God and I've never read his word and if I wasn't brought up by parents with Judeo-Christian values, my conscience might be telling me something really different than what God says. Conscience only knows what it's been told. Sometimes it doesn't even know what it's been told. Paul warns Timothy 
1 Timothy 4, verse 2, it's possible even for an informed conscience, a Christian conscience, a conscience that's been steeped in the truth to be seared. 1 Timothy 4, 2. Your conscience can be seared, Paul says, like, like skin getting seared by a hot iron, cauterized so that the nerves are insensate. They have, they have no feeling anymore. I don't know how many of us have been burned to that degree, but something that most of us can probably relate to is calluses. How do you get calluses? By, by rubbing, by repeated ongoing friction. Eventually the skin toughens up and you can't feel anything. That's how Hector can do what he does on the guitar, because he's got calluses on his fingertips. If I tried to do what he did, A, it would sound really bad, but B, it would hurt a whole lot, because I don't have the same calluses. Conscience works the same way. If we ignore it, disregard it, silence it, override it, eventually we get calloused to our own conscience. We can't even hear it anymore. Can't sense the Lord's conviction. Don't feel any sense of guilt or shame when, when we ignore God or disobey God. And boy, is that scary, right? Anyway, getting back to the text, verse 1, Paul says, hey, my conscience is clear. Verse 2, Ananias says, somebody hit him, please. And then Paul said to him, verse 3, Paul says to Ananias, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? What are you thinking? Ananias had no authority to do what he did. He had no authority, none, to have Paul beaten or punished in any way for that matter. Paul hadn't been found guilty of anything yet. This was essentially an informal gathering. It's at best a hearing to decide if a formal session of the Sanhedrin should be convened to try Paul on whatever charges they decided were appropriate. But much like Jesus' trial, they're making up the rules as they go along. John 18.22, in fact, when Jesus appeared before the high priest, what happened? He was struck. But unlike Jesus, Paul gets Paul gets salty. Paul, Paul allows his temper to get the best of him. Wait a minute, I thought that Jesus called someone whitewashed. He did. He called the scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23, 27, but not the high priest and not at his trial. Which tells us Paul's stressing out a little bit because he knows better. At this point, he's got to be wondering, though, this is starting the way that Jesus' trial started out. It's, it's illegal, they're disregarding due process, they're laying hands on me, is this going to end the way that Jesus' trial ended? The problem, though, the problem with Paul lashing out is that two wrongs don't make a right. And verse 4, they call him on it. Those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Because not, it's not something you get to do, provoked or otherwise. And to Paul's credit, he owns it. Verse 5, Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's Exodus 27, 28. Now the question, of course, is how does Paul not know? And, and, and there's a lot of possible answers. Did he just, had he not met Ananias? Or did he not recognize him? It's been a long time since Paul's been in Jerusalem. And Ananias wasn't the high priest when Paul left. Okay, but how did he not recognize the high priestly garments? I mean, those were, those were distinctive. But again, see, this is an informal proceeding. He might not have been wearing the full regalia. Okay, but, but, but surely just by the way people were acting around him, he had to pick out, well, 
But, but there are some clues in Scripture that suggest that Paul's eyesight was really bad. In fact, even back in verse 1 where it says Paul looked earnestly, some translations render that he looked intently. Was he squinting? Could he not really see? Here's another possibility, though, and this is suggested by some. Paul knew exactly who Ananias was, and he was being sarcastic. I don't know that he was the high priest, Paul says, because he's not acting like one. He's supposed to be upholding the law. He's breaking the law. So how am I supposed to know that he was the high priest? He's a lawbreaker. I I, I think that's possible. That would mean that Paul is 100% in the wrong, that, that he didn't speak out against the high priest accidentally, but rather intentionally. On the other hand, I don't, think that, I don't think that that necessarily means that that's not what's going on. One of the things that gives us confidence that the Bible is true is it doesn't pretty up its heroes. Peter, Paul, David, Moses, Jacob. The Bible presents them as men. Flawed, fallible. Guys who make brutal mistakes. So the bottom line is we don't know what's going on in verse 3. What we know is that this interview, this interrogation, whatever you want to call it, is not off to a good start. And Paul knows it's not off to a good start. So verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And it's concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm being judged. Will somebody do something? We've come across these two groups before, right? They showed up a lot in our study through the life of Christ, Sadducees and Pharisees. Pharisees, 30,000-foot review, Scholars put a lot of emphasis on God's word, teaching it and interpreting it. That's where we get the Talmud and the Mishra and so forth. They were relatively popular among the people and and relatively democratically oriented in in their mindset, whereas the Sadducees were the elite. They They were high priests, they were merchants, they were influential families. The Sadducees were aristocracy cloaked in a veneer of spirituality. Their, their base of operations, their base of power was the temple. They controlled the ministry in and around the temple where the Pharisees exerted their influence out in the synagogues where the people were. But part of how the Sadducees held control was through a selective interpretation of Scripture, which Paul's going to allude to in a moment. They refused to acknowledge any doctrine, any truth, any anything not found specifically, explicitly in black letters in the Pentateuch. The Pharisees said, well, there's what the Bible says and there's what it means. There's what it says and there's what God intends. And to understand what God intends, we should look at the historical books and the poetical books and the prophetic uh, scriptures. And we need to consider what the rabbis have said over the years. The Sadducees, uh uh-uh, don't need any of that. In fact, we're not going to pay attention to any of that. If it's not stated clearly in in the five books of Moses, it's not God's word. Which is how they got to, there is no soul, There is no resurrection, there is no heaven or hell, there is no afterlife. And everyone has heard the joke, that's why they were sad, you see. yeah. Wouldn't be Sunday morning without a good groaner. But that's why tension between the two groups. And the tension had been there for two centuries, which is why, verse 6, Paul is able to leverage it. He's able to exploit it. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm a son of a Pharisee, and this is why this is happening to me, because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they don't. Paul was a Pharisee. He says so many times. And, And that was, if you step back and look at it, that was what he was teaching. That was what he was bearing witness to. 
He was proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, specifically the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Which, if you you think about it, was less of an issue for the Pharisees than it was for the Sadducees. We see some Pharisees come to Christ. Paul, obviously. Nicodemus. We don't know for sure that any Sadducees ever did. We don't know that they didn't, only that Scripture doesn't talk about it, but that, that that would be a complete upheaval of their belief system to get to the idea that, that there's heaven and hell and Jesus came to purchase heaven for us and we know that his sacrifice was acceptable because God raised him from the dead. So it, it wouldn't be surprising if no Sadducees ever came to Christ. We don't know for sure. Some Pharisees did. We know that. Regardless, Paul pulls the Pharisee card. I'm a Pharisee and that's why they're persecuting me. It's because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And all of a sudden, no one's talking about Jesus anymore. When he had said this, a dissension be- arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there's no resurrection, and no angels, and no spirits, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. I mean, if a, if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. It's possible. It's possible, and, 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 and who's to say what God wants to do? And let's... Okay. Pause. Question I know someone's going to ask. Wait a minute. Aren't, aren't there angels in the Pentateuch? Yes. But remember, the Sadducees were a political party dressed up in spiritual clothing. So they just, you know, smoke and mirror, explain away anything that's inconvenient. And they had to explain away angels because if angels are real, an angel might show up. And if an angel shows up, he might says, say something that's from God. And he might say something that's contrary to their theology, that's contrary to, to the Sadducees being in power, and they like being in power. So no angels, because we don't want to change what we got. It's working for us. So, so knowing all of this, Paul picks a fight. He sees he's not going to prevail before the council. He's certainly not going to get a fair shake with Ananias, so he decides it's time to divide and conquer, or at least you know, divide and escape. And it works. Verse 10, when there arose a great dissension, that rose, word dissension in verse 19 is translated riot. The commander, verse 19, chapter 19, the commander, fearing Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force again from among them and bring him into the barracks again for his own safety. Paul's criticized in some circles for taking this approach. To some, it seems too carnal. You know, it's, it's, it's clever, and clever is carnal, and carnal is clever, and he should have just been simple before the Lord and waited for the Lord to deliver him. I don't, I don't think I agree. And again, I'm not opposed to the idea that Paul is capable of messing up. We see him messing up. Verse 3, whether he did it accidentally or on purpose, he sins. I said earlier, the Bible is, is honest about its heroes. They make mistakes, they sin. I just don't think this is one of those times. Paul shouldn't have been clever. You'll find that idea, words like that, in many commentaries, but I don't know where that comes from. Didn't Jesus tell us, Matthew 10, verse 16, I send you out as sheep among wolves, therefore be wise as serpents as well as harmless as doves, Matthew 10, verse 16. Be wise as serpents. Be clever, Jesus is exhorting them. I don't think that clever and carnal are automatically the same thing. I think they can be if, if we're clever in our, in our own strength, in our own wisdom. If we're out there relying on ourselves and not seeking or trusting the Lord. But the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of wisdom, is it not? Isaiah 11.2 says so. In fact, a lot of places in Scripture say so. 
The spirit of the Lord is the spirit of wisdom. So to those who say, well, Paul should have let the Lord deliver him, how do we know he didn't? How do we know that the Lord didn't give Paul this plan? Last week I was in New Mexico with with 10th Hour, and and these young adults are being trained up. They're going to spend three months being trained up in ministry. They're going to spend a month doing ministry around the country. Then everyone goes home for Christmas, and from there they fly out half the team to Uganda, half the team to Peru for three or four months of ministry on the missions field, and then they come back for, for some debriefing. But some of the the ministry that they're being trained up in, some of what's being imparted to them is evangelism. And they're being taught simultaneously, hey, you need to rely on the Holy Spirit and be thoughtful, be intentional, be, be wise and even clever about how you share Jesus. And they're using material from guys like Frank Turek. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, that Frank Turek. Greg Kokel, um, Stand to Reason. And, and both of them talk about tactics in sharing our faith, ways to start conversations and keep conversations going, ways to present the gospel, ways to respond to common questions that, that seekers and skeptics both have, and, and ways to ask thoughtful questions to challenge people's preconceptions. The Bible. The Bible is stupid. Every, we, we don't even know what the Bible says. No one knows what people actually said or wrote 2,000 years ago. Oh, interesting. Where, 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 where do you read that? Well, everybody knows that. That's interesting. Because I can point you to some sources that tell us that the writings of the early church fathers, the first century, two centuries after Jesus, quoted the Bible that existed in their day to such an extent we can reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the writings of the early church fathers. And you know what? It's almost exactly the same as the Bible that we have 1,900 years later. Isn't that interesting? Well, you know, Jesus didn't die and, and rise again. No, people don't rise from the dead. You know, I, I get where you're coming from, but the, the thing that I don't understand is why then, if the apostles knew that this was a conspiracy, they all were in on it and, and, and they agreed to, 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 to spread this lie, why were they willing to die for a lie? Who, who dies for, for a, a, a piece of fiction? And, and I could, see, I could argue that they're being trained to be clever, and I, and I think that that's true. But I think that as long as they are simultaneously yielded to the Holy Spirit, I think that group of young people is going to make a huge difference in the world for Jesus. Is it possible Paul was being too carnal, too clever, relying on his own wits and wisdom? I guess so, but I don't think we can conclude that from what's here. And if Paul did do something wrong that day, I think it's intriguing. Jesus doesn't mention it the following evening. Verse 11, Jesus doesn't tell Paul when he shows up in Paul's bedroom, he doesn't tell Paul that Paul did anything wrong. And said the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Sounds to me like Jesus is saying, keep on keeping on. Which brings up an interesting question. What is Jesus congratulating Paul about exactly? Congratulating might not be the word. Complimenting, endorsing, encouraging, I don't know. Jesus is clearly approving what Paul did when he was in Jerusalem. That was great, Paul, Jesus says in verse 11. 
Well done. I'll just do the same thing that you did here when you get to Rome. What did Paul do that was so anything? No one got saved that we know of. No churches were planted. No disciples were trained up. Why was Jesus proud of Paul in that moment? Answer. Paul was obedient. Nothing more, nothing less. We like reading the first two-thirds of the book of Acts. I know a lot of people say, Acts is my favorite book. But what they really mean is, I love the first 20 chapters of Acts. People like reading it. Pastors love teaching it. Why? The answer is in the name. It's action. Stuff is happening. People moving. People going places, doing things. People are getting saved. Disciples trained up. Missionaries sent out. Churches planted. And yeah, persecution is happening and people are dying for their faith. But that just shows us that God was on the move. Until we get to chapter 21, 22, 23, and all of a sudden stuff gets sludgy, doesn't it? You know, Paul's still going places, but where's the fruit? Like that Wendy's commercial back in the 80s. Where's the fruit? It's hard to point at any. Paul's mostly doing the same stuff that he's been doing. He's preaching the gospel, he's sharing the testimony, but now wherever he goes, whoever he talks to, it's just bouncing off of him. It's been true the last couple chapters. It's going to be true the next couple chapters. And we don't know what we don't know. We don't know if he was having an impact that Scripture doesn't record. Maybe someone in that crowd outside the temple got saved. Maybe someone in the Roman barracks got saved. But, but all we know for sure is probably all that Paul could see, which was a whole lot of not much. Which is why I think that Jesus spoke to Paul the way he did in the place that he did at the time that he did, verse 11. I think Jesus, well, I know that Jesus knew that Paul was getting frustrated. There's no maybe. Jesus knew Paul was getting frustrated. He knew that Paul was disappointed. He understood why Paul might feel that he was letting Jesus down. So verse 11, Jesus shows up to say, you're not You're not letting me down. You're not disappointing me even a little bit. In fact, the opposite. Be of good cheer, Paul. Be encouraged. You're getting it exactly right, brother. How? How could Paul be pleasing the Lord when, as far as we can tell, he wasn't accomplishing anything? Not leading anyone to the Lord, not making an eternal difference in anyone's life that we can see? Answer. Those aren't the things that please the Lord. What are you talking about, comma, Willis, question mark? What do you mean those aren't the things that please the Lord? Jesus said, make disciples. Paul said, equip the saints. Peter said, go and be fruitful in the name of Jesus. And for the last two chapters and the next couple chapters, it doesn't seem like Paul's doing any of that. How can God be pleased with them? To which I'd say again, A, we don't know what kind of fruit the Bible doesn't record. But B, and more importantly, pleasing the Lord isn't a function of the fruit we see. It's a function of the relationship we have. Let me say that again. Pleasing the Lord is not a function of the fruit we see. It's a function of the relationship we have. Sharing the gospel is our calling. Equipping the saints is our calling. Being fruitful in ministry is our calling. That's fine. That's good. That's true. How do we do any of that? Answer, what's our greatest calling? 
as believers? What's the most fundamental, most foundational thing we're called to be and do? Children of God. How does Jesus propose that we fulfill the Great Commission? That we build his church? That we bear much fruit? He tells us, abide. Abide in me. Completely unplanned and unscripted, we actually sing what Jesus says. The last song before the message, John 15. You can turn there or just listen. Familiar verses. The night before he's crucified, Jesus tells his guys, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What does the branch have to do to bear fruit? Stay plugged into the vine. And if it stays plugged into the vine, it can't help but bear fruit. I'm the vine, you are the branches, Jesus continues. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Abide, Jesus says. Except Paul wasn't there when he said it because Paul wasn't saved yet. And maybe that's why Paul appears when he does. I'm sorry, that's why Jesus appears to Paul when he does. To remind him, our relationship with God is not about what we do for God. God doesn't love us, value us, treasure us on the basis of the things that we accomplish. He loves us on the basis of what Christ accomplished. And so we cannot evaluate our relationship with God on the basis of this many people saved, this many disciples trained, this many churches planted, this many doors opened, this many diapers changed, this many meals delivered, or any of the other things that we do to love and serve the Lord. None of that earns God's love. We have God's love. And his foremost desire, Jesus just said in John 15, is that we would rest in his love and abide in his love. Because it's an abiding that we draw close to God and learn more about who he is and, 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 and discover new dimensions of how much he loves us. It's an abiding that we discover God's will. And lay hold of his power to walk in his ways. Because as we abide, yeah, he will meet us and bless us with opportunities to serve. Not because he needs us. If God wanted things done perfectly, he would do them himself. The best, we can, the, the best that's going to happen by involving us in ministry, it's going to be less good than if God did it himself. But he's willing to see that happen because he loves us so much, he wants to do things with us. And sometimes it's dramatic things, and other times it's subtle things. Sometimes it involves moving, changing, going, doing, and other times it's, hey, stay the course. Sometimes it it, it involves many, and sometimes it's a few. And sometimes, as far as we can tell, we're impacting exactly none. But sometimes this and sometimes that. Every time, God knows And Paul knows that God knows this. And Jesus is reminding him, Paul, you know this. We told you this the whole way back to Jerusalem, that this was going to be a different kind of ministry. 
So, so ignore what your eyes are telling you. I know that you're taking your eye off the ball here a little bit. Jesus is mercifully saying, your eyes can't see everything God is doing. All any of us can know for sure is whether we're abiding, whether we're resting, whether we're trusting. And from that place, from that place, we get to begin obeying. And we can look and tell ourselves, I don't see any harvest. But we don't know. We don't know if the seed that someone else planted we're watering. We don't know if we're planting for someone else to water. We don't know if we're working for a harvest that's going to happen later outside our field of view. Only God does. We can walk away disappointed. Oh, I was talking to this person and I was sharing Jesus with them for like half an hour and then they just they didn't respond. We don't know what's going to happen later. Maybe when they hear the gospel a second time, a third time, an eighth time. Or maybe that person we thought was our ministry wasn't really our ministry at all. It was somebody else who was watching. It was somebody over here listening. Do you think Paul had any idea when he was speaking in chapter 22, he was speaking words that would become Scripture? That the testimony that was universally rejected by the crowd would encourage 50 generations of believers? Samuel declares, 1 Samuel 15, 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because obedience acknowledges that God knows more than we do. We can see the sacrifice. And because we can, a lot of times we want to choose the sacrifice. This is what I'm going to do for you, Lord. Here's how I'm going to serve you, Jesus. You're going to really love me for this, God. You're going to be so proud. Isn't that what Cain did? Forgetting that God's ways are above our ways. How much more can God use us if instead of trying to serve our way to him, serve our way into his love, we simply trust and abide in his love. We rest in his love. We remind ourselves we already have his love. And the things that we do, we do as an overflow of his love. The things that we do, we do because God calls us to them and wants to do them with us. For purposes that we might not understand. For fruit that we might not ever see. Sitting in the barracks that night, Paul didn't have any idea how his words that day were going to end up carrying him to Rome. He just knew he did what he was supposed to do. And we, sitting here this morning, we don't have any idea what all of the fruit was of Paul's time in Rome. He's there for two years. All we know for sure is we got four books out of the, of the Bible out of it. But where would the church be without the prison epistles? All Paul knew that was, was God was saying, hey, Paul, let's go to Rome. Let's go there together. Let's do some things there together. And that was enough for him. God tells us in Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the days of small things. Don't despise the days of small things. Zechariah 4.10, why? Because a lot of times it's in the small things that we find God. He dwells in the details. We think of God as huge, and rightly so. He's creator God who, who swept forth the universe like, like unfurling a curtain, and that's true. But God is also personally involved in every cell division of every living being. God personally holds the atoms of the universe together. 
Don't despise the days of small things. That's where God moves. That's where God changes hearts. That's where God transforms lives. One baby born to an unwed couple out in the sticks somewhere. Pretty small thing, but not from God's perspective. Known criminal strung up on, on a hill to die. Just another day in Roman-occupied Judea. How many are we going to kill today? I don't know. Let me look at the list. Business as usual, but not from God's perspective. And the impact we make in this world, the things we do that could have an eternal impact on the people around us, are likely to appear small and insignificant to anybody watching and even smaller and more trivial to us. But as we abide in him, God will lead us to the small things that he's prepared for us, the small things that he's going to dwell in, the small things that he will use for his glory and for our joy. Homework this week, if you're so inclined. Action steps, if that makes it more appealing. Let's pay attention this week to how many times we find ourselves saying, what difference is it going to make? What's the big deal? Pay attention to how many times we respond that way to God saying to us, hey, I got something for us to do together. I think God's calling me to serve in the nursery, but I mean, what's the big deal? It's not like anyone's life is going to change. Well, what about the person who comes to church and is, and is thrilled and delighted to see that her kids are going to be well taken care of because the, the nursery is well staffed? And the person who gets deeper in their relationship with God because they're able to worship and, and listen to the word without the distraction of a child. Or the person who's so excited about the love that their kids get here that they invite people and they're impacted. What about the child who learns early on, even as a toddler, that church is a safe place where people love them and years later when their parents get complacent, they're the ones bringing their parents to church and reminding them that Sunday is important. No small things. I know that God is great, calling me to greater personal holiness, but what's the big deal? I mean, nobody knows, and I'm still able to, you know, serve in ministry. Okay, but what's the ministry that you're not doing? What are, what are, what are the souls that could be impacted? How, how, how might my testimony of overcoming be used to encourage people who are still caught up in addiction? How might God use the story of his faithfulness in my life as I abide in him and even in private moments where nobody sees? I know I'm supposed to forgive, but what's the big deal if I do or don't? Those people aren't in my life anymore. They won't know if I forgive them and they won't care if they know. Yeah, but isn't that a greater testimony? Isn't that even more of a Jesus story? Forgiving when you're not asked. Forgiving when someone isn't sorry. Forgiving, expecting nothing in return. Isn't that an even clearer picture of God's unconditional love? Doesn't that give me a more compelling story to tell on, about how abiding in Him erases bitterness and erases it with peace? What's the big deal if I tell somebody about Jesus or not? Hasn't God promised if they don't hear it from me, they'll hear it from someone? Maybe, but how precious are the weeks, the months, the years maybe if they hear it sooner? 
If they're pulled out of their menace, their misery sooner, pulled into joy sooner, begin worshiping sooner, begin sharing their faith sooner, begin impacting the world for Christ sooner. Small thing to throw a pebble in a lake, but how great the ripples go. What's the big deal about daily devotions? God is still God whether I spend time with him or not. Yeah, but will I remember that God is still God if I don't spend time with him? Will I remember that he loves me not because of everything that I do, but because of everything Christ did? Will I remember that he loves me? Will I remember that he has plans for me? Will I remember that he will equip me and use me in ways that he chooses as I abide in him? And will I remember that's where the joy is, at his feet, abiding in his love? Unless I'm in his presence and at his feet, abiding in his love. Be of good cheer, Jesus says to Paul. You can't possibly know the difference you're going to make, but I do. Paul, be of good cheer, Jesus says. You don't know all the plans that I have for you, but I do. Be of good cheer, Paul. You don't know how the next chapter is going to unfold. I've already seen it. Be of good cheer, Paul. Even when it gets rough, I'll be with you. Abide in me. I'll be leading you. Rest in me. I'll keep equipping you. Rejoice in me. I'll comfort you. Trust me, I'm using you right now. And he was. In a cold barracks room, maybe behind bars, in the Antonia Fortress 2,000 years ago, the things that Jesus was saying to Paul He was also saying to us, he was using Paul to speak to us. He's using Paul, he was using the conversation to say to us, be of good cheer, Calvary, Wichita. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. Just abide in me and you will bear much fruit. You and me, Jesus says. Jesus and Calvary. Together. Oh, how our flesh wants to strive, wants to make, wants to manufacture, wants to construct, wants to pursue, wants to do, wants to build. And your grace is none of those things. Your grace is what we receive. Your grace is what you freely impart. Because the things that we do give us a reason to rejoice in ourselves. The things that we receive put our focus, our attention, our worship on the one who is worthy. Jesus teaches us to abide. 